Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. I'm so pleased to have Peter Cousins as my guest today. He is an international award-winning author or editor of 18 books on the American Civil War in the American West. He retired after a 30-year career as a Foreign Service Officer, U.S. Department of State, and prior to joining the Foreign Service, he served as a captain in the U.S. Army. He is here to talk about his most recent book called A Brutal Reckoning, Andrew Jackson, The Creek Indians, and The Epic War for the American South. Thank you for coming on the show. So great to have you. Oh, it's my pleasure, and thank you for having me. Yes, certainly. So what was your motivation? for writing this book. Why do you think the story was so important to tell? Well, I, you know, I started uh, what, I, what I consider, uh, loosely speaking, my trilogy on America's westward expansion with uh, my book, The Earth is Weeping, the Epic Story of the Indian Wars for the American West. And that covers the, um, the Indian Wars that occurred after the Civil War the Indian Wars of Popular Imagination. And, and once I completed that, I realized that by the time the conflict had, had reached the American West, the outcome was pretty much a fait accompli, and that the, the war, so to speak, against uh, the American Indians and the, you know, the, the um, usurpation of their lands, that issue was really decided much earlier east of the Mississippi River, specifically in, in the modern-day Midwest, which was then called the Old Northwest, and, and uh, to an even greater extent in the Deep South. So that led me to first to a, do a book on uh, Chief Tecumseh and his brother and their alliance against Americans in the Midwest, and then to conclude the trilogy, where I actually should have be, began it, with the Creek War in the American South, which, as I, as I discovered in the course of researching and writing the book, was really the most consequential conflict between the United States and, and Native Americans in our history. So to, to give you a shorter answer, I wrote the book because I, I considered the, uh, the Creek War, its antecedents, and, and then uh, what followed it to be the most important struggle between American Indians and the United States uh, in our nation's history. And, and there is some overlap between this book and your book about A great deal, Tecumseh. Actually. You're right. And, and they occur more or less concurrently in time. And Tecumseh is a player uh, insofar as helping to spark 
the conflict that um, eventually became the Creek War. Yeah. So I would like to ask you about your decision in, in writing this book to use the term Indian and not Native American. Why did you make that decision? Right. Well, you know, I, I, I took my cue from several sources, one being from American Indians themselves. They prefer, generally speaking, to, to be addressed by their tribal name. And then secondly, by, by American Indian. And Native American really has fallen out of whatever favor it may have once had among American Indians, general, generally speaking. You have to look no further than the, the National Museum of the American Indian here in Washington, D.C., uh, that name was given by a, a committee of, of American Indians drawn from various tribes. So, I, you know, I, I took my cue from that. And also because I think using more modern terminology, you know, like Native American, is, is kind of jarring and discordant in a work of history. It, it strikes me as anachronistic. And I, I at least find it jarring. And I, I you know, assume many readers would as well. Your book opens with Andrew Jackson lying on a couch in a place called the Nashville Inn in Tennessee and in pretty bad shape. Can you describe the scene for us and tell us why you decided to use this story in your prologue? Certainly. I, I decided to use it in the prologue, and I'll describe the scene in, the, in a, uh, more fully in a moment, because Andrew Jackson was, as, as readers will, will discover, he was really the, I think more than in any other American conflict, it was the case in the Creek War that a single man, in this case, Andrew Jackson, uh, was responsible for the outcome. It was he alone who really had the wherewithal to, to prosecute the war to his conclusion after uh, other states and territories that were involved uh, fell by the wayside. And, um, but the nature of the story is such that, you know, obviously I wanted to give the readers a good feel for Creek culture, a, a good background, not only into the Creeks, but also into the other tribes of the Deep South, give them the milieu uh, historically and, uh, you know, the backdrop to the Creek War proper before I introduce Andrew Jackson. And um, that being the case, Andrew Jackson doesn't appear uh, on stage until, oh, almost... Uh, between, I don't know, third and 40% of the way through the book. Um, from then on, he dominates the story. But I, I, I wanted to, you know, to, to inform readers early on that, hey, here's Andrew Jackson. He's going to be important. Uh, be patient. We'll, we'll get to him yeah. um, in, in, in due course. <laughs> and uh, the particular scene I chose, was, it was ironic. Andrew Jackson was, was, among other things, a hothead and given to duels. And... Um, he uh, had been the second uh, to an opponent in a duel of his leading, most important subordinate's brother. That is to say, um, a fellow named Jesse Benton, whose brother Thomas Hart Benton would go on to become a famous senator from Missouri, had gone to Washington, D.C. to try to get Jackson reimbursed for some extensive expenses he had incurred on behalf of his Tennessee volunteers in the early days of the War of 1812. And Thomas Hart Benton returned to find that Jackson had been a second to his brother Jesse's opponent in a duel that had left Jesse with a uh, bullet crease across his buttocks and made him the laughingstock of Nashville. And Thomas Hart Benton was, you know, furious because he had succeeded in Washington in arguing Jackson's case, only to find Jackson had sort of betrayed him. And Jackson's response was, well, I'll teach that I'll teach those Bettons a lesson or two. And he rode into Nashville with a couple of friends intending to whip whip the uh, Bettons. And instead, he fell into a, uh, a kind of a serial comical gunfight uh, on the steps of an inn in, in Nashville in which he was the only one seriously wounded. And in fact, he was grievously wounded in the, uh, in the, the shoulder and, and the arm and um, was, uh, he almost bled to death uh, at the very time that a, a courier was on the road to Nashville from the Mississippi Territory 
to inform uh, Tennesseans that war had broken out with the Creek Indians after a, a massacre at a frontier post called Fort Mims, in which uh, a large number of civilians were massacred. So his timing couldn't have been worse. And it was, it was kind of ironic that Jackson, who was uh, one of the greatest advocates of war against the hostile faction of the Creeks, found himself um, uh, grievously wounded on a, on a bed in a fight that never needed to happen. Right. Could you talk about the, the clan structure, the multi-lineal clan structure of the Creek people? Right. The, the, just to, to open it more broadly, the, uh, the Creeks were one of four tribes that controlled the majority of what is today the Deep South. You had the, the Cherokee, the Creeks, the Choctaw, and the Chickasaw. The Creeks were the largest of the four tribes and controlled the most land. In, in 1813, when the, the, the action of the Creek War really begins you know, in earnest, the Creeks controlled all of Alabama, all of modern Alabama, western the western third of modern Georgia, and the western third, excuse me, of modern Georgia. They numbered about twenty to twenty-five thousand tribesmen. So it was a, you know, it was a huge swath of land that they occupied. I mean, it was, it was the it included the the famous Black Belt, the you know the best soil for cotton growing in the South. And the Creeks were, they were not a particularly cohesive tribe. They were more properly a a loosely uh, united confederacy of largely autonomous villages that, uh, as you say, were matrilineal. They traced descent through the mother and uh, came together seldom as a nation. In fact, Teddy Roosevelt described the Creek Confederacy very adroitly as a, uh, a rope of sand, which is very much what it was. And, and because of the, matril- the matrilineal nature of Creek society, there were a disproportionate number of Creek leaders, both in the hostile faction, the Red Sticks, who ended up fighting the United States, and those Creeks who sided with the United States, who were of Scots-Irish descent, whose whose fathers or grandfathers were Scots-Irish traders and merchants who intermarried with Creek women. And that that can be kind of jarring to a reader to discover uh, American Indian leaders with names like Josiah Francis and William Weatherford and and William McIntosh and so forth. So that becomes an issue later on, right? Uh, one of the difficulties for the Creek is that when they were faced with an enemy, a large enemy, they had a hard time coordinating with each other, right? B- because of the autonomous nature of their tribes. That That's absolutely correct. And um, they were so spread out that you had this dichotomy that had developed over time between what were called the upper creeks and the lower creeks. And uh, their villages uh, were sufficiently removed from one another that you had the upper creeks who lived uh, more distant from encroaching whites, wanted to preserve the old way of life and resisted attempted white inroads much more than the lower creek villages who lived closer to, uh, to white settlers and began assimilating. And uh, so not only could they not unite as, as, as a people, but they, 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 they split into two, two factions that by 1813 were, were greatly different in, in their, um, in their attitudes toward the United States and, and their, their ways of life. Were they inadaptable people? I mean, they had to, to navigate, right? The influx of the British the French, the Spanish, and oftentimes had to play one against the other just to survive. They were an adaptable people, as were um, all the tribes of the South um, to varying degrees. But that that adaptability and ability to play, you know, one power off against one another, of course, that that ended with the American victory in the Revolutionary War. And um, still, you know, the Creeks 
lar- a large portion of the Creek population, especially among the lower Creeks, were what were called Metis or mixed blood, you know, Scots-Irish blood mixed with Creek. And they, in particular, uh, adapted uh, not only clothing and, and weaponry and utensils and whatnot of, of whites, but also took up to a limited degree slavery, um, you know, cotton, agriculture, and things like that. And, and they, so they were adaptable to a point, but when it became, became apparent that the United States wanted to cut a, a major road right through the heart of the Creek country, wanted to use the rivers that ran north and south through Alabama for, for commercial traffic, and wanted to, to impose a strictly agricultural way of life on the Creeks and try to, to actually to, to strengthen them as a nation and dispense with a lot of the village autonomy, which was so central to the Creek way of life. That's when a lot of the Creeks said, you know, enough is enough and, and, and rebelled. And you do write in your book that prior to Jefferson becoming president, uh, Washington Adams were passive or, or neutral when it came to tribes in that area. But it was Jefferson who, as president, became much more aggressive in his pursuit of Indian land east of the, the Mississippi River. Absolutely. Uh, really, the pressure didn't really start building for that land until you know the turn of the 19th century, until it was the start of Jefferson's administration. And Thomas Jefferson unlike Adams and Washington, he was a proponent, an advocate of what he called a, um, an empire of liberty founded on a, a country that was populated largely by small farmers, as opposed to you know a, a strong central government and a strong urban presence. And so he saw the acquisition of lands in the West, which in that time would be you know, the Deep South as being critical to maintaining democracy, to um, allow for kind of a, a uh, fast-growing population east of the Appalachians to, to sort of uh, be able to acquire new land before, before uh, the pressures be too, became too great along the eastern seaboard. And also, uh, until the Louisiana Purchase, he also saw that as a, as a way of uh, defending the American frontier. So he advocated, he, you know, he didn't want outright war if he could avoid it, but he advocated both in the old Northwest and the American South, uh, the, the purchasing of as much Indian land as possible. And in the, in the misguided belief that the Indians would willingly trade land, trade away land when they saw the benefits of becoming uh, more like Americans in terms of their way of life, that is to say, becoming you know, small small farmers. Even Jefferson realized that that, um, that might not be a realistic goal and that eventually the Indians of the American South would have to be relocated west of the Mississippi. So in the second war between England and America, the War of 1812. This man that you mentioned earlier and who you've devoted a book to, uh, Tecumseh, he he makes a a visit to the Creeks. Would you tell us more about Tecumseh, why he visits them, what his message is, and whether or not they are receptive to him? Right. Tecumseh was in many ways the, the greatest American Indian political and military leader in our nation's history. And at the time in which he speak, he and his brother, Tengswatawa, also known as the Shawnee Prophet, led uh, a large political, military, and, and social, cultural alliance in, in the Midwest, uh, allied with the British against the United States, which had already made you know, tremendous inroads, unlike in the South, Deep South. The, the United States had already gobbled up a, a large portion of American Indian land in the Midwest. And Tecumseh was on the verge of making, as he's you know, recognized, a, a last stand against the Americans uh, in alliance with the British. And in anticipation of that, he, um, he traveled to the tr- visit the tribes of the Deep South in uh, 
uh, late 1811, calling on them to join together with his northern Indian Confederacy to oppose white encroachment, that they you know, should not provoke conflict, but that they should all join together to resist further any further attempts of the United States to to uh, to encroach on Indian lands. That that was the only way that they could uh, they could survive. And he um, he also planted uh, the seed of a seed of, of, of cultural renewal and, and 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 Indian social renewal among the uh, among his Creek audiences. For the most part, he was rejected, rejected roundly by the other three tribes and also by most Creeks. But he came at a time when there was already among many of the upper Creeks a, a movement, a kind of a radical movement brewing to do just what Tecumseh suggested and to combine that with a cultural renewal and a push to return to the old, the old uh, way of life. And so he... He kind of nurtured, I should say, nurtured a seed that was already there among one faction of the Creeks, and that that faction ended up becoming the Red Sticks, who opposed first the accommodationist Creeks and then made war on on the United States. How did they get the name Red Sticks? The name Red Sticks comes from um, a very effective traditional weapon that that all Creeks wielded. It was a, um, a war club uh, painted red that uh, was used in close combat. And when you were hit with uh, a war club with a, a red stick, as they called them, it was like being hit over the head with a baseball bat. I mean, they were very effective weapons and they had a lot of religious um, symbolism as well. So the traditionalist faction, we'll call them, the, uh, adopted the the red stick as uh, as their... Uh, emblem of war, and they called themselves the Red Six and became known to their American enemies as the Red Six as well. Uh, while we're on the subject of names, how how did the Creeks get that name? I mean, it's an English name, right? Yeah, they they they're, they call themselves the Muscogees, although many of them did adopt for themselves, especially the Mati among them. And, and the Literate Creeks did, did adopt the name Creek when referring to themselves. And that name came from uh, back in the 1600s when the first British traders coming from the Carolina colonies and uh, the New Georgia colony first met these natives and they were living alongside of Creeks in, in what is today Georgia. And so the, the British gave them the name Creek Indians, and the name took. We will be back after this brief break. Hello all, Eric here. So you can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been. On every episode of NPR's Throughline, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? If you are interested in the stories behind today's news stories or learning how the past informs the present, you're going to love the Through Line podcast from NPR. I've listened to and enjoyed many episodes of Through Line over the years and learned about a number of historical figures that I had never heard about before. And I've gotten insights into well known historical events. Line approaches these figures and events from really interesting new angles, often telling a completely different story than the one that's typically told. Here's an example, an episode I particularly enjoyed. It's called The Lord of Misrule, and it's about a man named Thomas Morton, an early New England colonist who butted heads with William Bradford, governor of the Plymouth Colony, and Morton would end up publishing a book critical of the Puritans, a book that is considered to be the first book ever banned in American history. So let Throughline take you back in time to the source of the stories filling your feed. Listen now to Throughline from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Hey all, it's Eric. So eating better is easy with Factors scrumptious ready-to-eat meals. Don't feel like prepping, cooking, or cleaning and tired of takeout? Every Factor meal is fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted, and ready to go in just two minutes. 
There are 35 different options to choose from each week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor is really flexible for busy schedules, too. Get as much or as little as you need each week, pause or reschedule deliveries anytime. There are breakfast and midday bite options, too, like pancakes, smoothies, and more. And of course, made with premium ingredients. And Factor has done the math. It's less expensive than takeout, and each meal, dietitian approved to be nutritious. The other day, I downed the salsa shredded chicken thighs with sweet potatoes and Southwest veggie medley. The perfect amount of spice, I thought, and really, really delicious. So head to factormeals.com slash notorious50 and use code notorious50 to get 50% off. That's code notorious50 at factormeals.com slash notorious50 to get 50% off. I highly recommend Factor and really hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Cheers. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. And we have returned. So the Red Sticks, inspired by Tecumseh, decided to take their frustrations and turn them into action. Right. What did they decide to do? What were their goals? Well, the first thing they do is they, uh, they make war, declare a war on the accommodationist lower creeks, the creeks who, who lived in, in you know the southern southern portion of what is today Alabama, as well as uh, western Georgia. So they first make war on, on their fellow fellow creeks and and on them, particularly on the accommodationist Metis element among the lower creeks. Their objective being to, to bring all the creeks in line and uh, over to their dogma of, uh, again, restoring traditional traditional Creek way of life and resisting uh, American either cultural or, or, or land encroachment. And uh, that within a matter of months, that degenerated into a, into a war against the United States. And the way that happened was there were a number of, as when the Creek Civil War broke out, whites residing in the Mississippi Territory Western Georgia and, and, and Tennessee saw this as, a, as, as both a threat to their uh, homesteads and also as a possible opportunity to obtain Creek land as a result of this conflict. And um, frightened settlers in the Mississippi Territory, the portion that bordered on, on the Red Stick country, their, their militia prepared for war against the Red Sticks. And there was a skirmish in which a number of those who engaged with the Red Sticks were Metis, were Creek Metis, uh, who lived just you know just beyond the boundaries of the Red Stick land, and the Red Sticks sought to punish primarily them, and they attacked a place called Fort Mims, just north of Mobile, in which both white settlers and Metis had forted up, uh, intending primarily on punishing the Metis for going against their own people. But uh, as it turned out, they also slaughtered not only the white garrison, but also a lot of white civilians. And that led to a, to a general war with the United States. Uh, that was at the end of, of August in 1813, right? It, it right. followed something called the Battle of Burnt Corn. Yeah, that was, that was a skirmish that I was referring to earlier in which um, a, a large war party that had gone to uh, Pensacola to solicit assistance from the Spanish. Florida at that time was under Spanish control. That had gone to Pensacola to solicit aid from the Spanish was returning to their, to their home country and uh, clashed with uh, Mississippi Territory Militia and their the Metis uh, allies. So the the Fort Mims massacre was was basically a giant wake up call to the 
U.S. government, right? Yeah, it was the bloodiest massacre of of whites and and you know mixed blood people in in the United States history. So it, it was there was quite a clarion call after that. It was a complicated time, right? There was a lot going on in the country. The United States was waging war with England and also responding to this massacre. What did they decide to do to the Creeks? Well, yeah, the situation as, as it quickly evolved is, you know, as you said, the, the United States government, the James Madison administration was busy fighting the British and not doing a very good job of it, was, was uh, actually losing fairly badly in the War of 1812, which was being fought principally in, in Canada and in the Midwest along the eastern uh, uh, shore. And so they didn't really pay a lot of attention to what was happening in the Deep South, as critical as it was to the preservation of the United States, uh, you know, defeating the Red Sticks, the um, Madison administration pretty much left it to the state of Tennessee, um, the state of Georgia, and the um, small Mississippi Territory to fight the war as best they could. Uh, They just didn't have the resources or, or, or the inclination to pay a lot of attention to it, even though a, a red stick victory, particularly if the British were to join the fight uh, on the southern coast, that would could pretend a loss of, of all that land, uh, of, you know, of the deep south to the United States. So I mean, it was very, the, the, uh, the uh, consequences of American defeat were very, very great potentially, but the U.S. government was too preoccupied fighting the British to give it the attention it deserved. So it really largely fell to the hands of the, the militias and volunteers of Tennessee, Georgia, and the Mississippi Territory with kind of loose supervision from the, the uh, United States Army to, to fight the war against the Red Sticks. So Andrew Jackson was rising through the military ranks at, at this time, correct? How was he pulled into this conflict? Well, you had you had, um, you know, had the the Red Sticks who um, controlled the better part of, of Alabama. They had uh, succeeded in, in, in driving a lot of the lower creeks out of their villages, and and uh, upper creeks who didn't want to join them retreated into the Cherokee country, and so they they controlled you know a, a large swath of Alabama, and. Um, you had uh, a number of attacks that were launched independently of one another into the Red Stick country. You had two expeditions in the course of uh, 1813 and early 1814 that were launched in the Mississippi Territory, both of which you know, achieved small victories but withdrew because of uh, logistical problems. You had two invasions of the Red Stick country from Georgia both of which had to withdraw ultimately for lack of provisions. And you then you had invading forces from Tennessee. Andrew Jackson who was actually merely a major general in the Tennessee militia. He commanded the West Tennessee militia. And by date of rank, had actually overall command of all the Tennessee militia. And he would stage three separate assaults into the Red Stick country from the north. And by... By early 1814, it looked as though the Red Sticks would prevail because the Georgians had pretty much given up. They didn't see any anything to be gained by further conflict, nor did the uh, Mississippi Territory. And in fact, even the governor of Tennessee suggested that uh, Andrew Jackson, after a lot of his most of his troops had gone home when their enlistment ran out, to just give up the game and come back to Tennessee, which would have uh, left the Red Sticks victorious, but Jackson perceived the larger threat of, you know, British intervention in the Gulf Coast and uh, in, in the, in the, on behalf of the Creek of the Red Sticks, he saw the strategic threat there and he intended to, to prosecute the war to his completion uh, once he had the troops to do so. So he alone was left as, as uh, the spring of 1814 dawned, uh, alone wanting to prosecute the war to its conclusion. Yeah. There are other famous names in the story. Davy Crockett, Sam Houston. Right. Were they well-known at, at this point in history? 
No, they weren't. Uh, in fact, I, I have an article coming out in the next issue of American History Illustrated uh, called D- David Crockett and, and Sam Houston's Baptism of Fire in, in the Creek War. It was in the Creek War that both of them, as, as, as young men, relatively young men, Crockett in his 30s, early 30s, and, and, and uh, Sam Houston in, uh, in his 20s, first saw war, first saw combat. Crockett it didn't really make a name for himself. He was just a private in a Tennessee uh, mounted infantry unit, and he he went home after his short enlistment ran out. But he did see some significant action, and he left really vivid memoirs of his experiences fighting the Red Sticks. And he was pretty much horrified by the brutality of the war, uh, brutality displayed by his fellow Tennesseans. And... Um, Sam Houston, on the other hand, was a lieutenant in a regiment of regulars that was raised in East Tennessee that eventually was given to Andrew Jackson in early 1814, and uh, the presence of which, along with new volunteers from Tennessee, enabled him to finally take the war successively to the Red Sticks and prevail. He was uh, first an ensign, then a lieutenant in this regiment, and he fought at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, which was a climactic battle of the Creek War. In fact, it was the bloodiest battle from the American Indian point of view in United States history. Almost a thousand Red Stick warriors were killed in, in less than a day of combat. And Sam Houston was grievously wounded at the Battle of uh, Horseshoe Bend, in fact, left for dead overnight by by surgeons who saw no chance of, of saving him. But as we all knew, as we all know, he did survive and then go on to become the, uh, the governor of Texas and the president of the Republic of Texas. So his, both his and Crockett's stories are, are, are pretty dramatic in the Creek War. Yeah. W- would you tell us a bit more about the Battle of Horseshoe Bend? Uh, where is Horseshoe Bend, and what brought each side there? Um, Horseshoe Bend is located in uh, north central Alabama, it's, it's, and the Red Sticks by early 1814 had they'd congregated. They were no longer on the offensive; they were, in fact, only briefly on the offensive, and they had congregated in three, kind of roughly around three strongholds. One in in uh, Western portion of the Red Stick country in Western Alabama, one more centrally located, and then one more nor- in, in North Central Alabama around a a horseshoe shaped bend in the Tallapoosa River, and the uh, the group of Red Sticks that congregated there had built a barricade across across that peninsula to defend against an attack from from Tennessee which came, which Andrew Jackson launched uh, with his reinforced uh, army in March 1814. And uh, his intention was to uh, knock down this, this red stick barricade across the, this uh, 100 acre or so men in the Tallapoosa River, uh, eliminate the warriors, and, and uh, then go on to mop up the rest of the uh, rest of the red stick country. That, that was very interesting to read about that. Those fortifications built by the red sticks, they really took a, a page from European warfare. They sure did. The, these uh, log fortifications they, they constructed across, across this, uh, this bend in the Tallapoosa that protected their village and really was as strong as probably, you know, the most, earthworks constructed during the American Civil War. I mean, they were, uh, as Jackson found, found to his great dismay, what he planned to do is he, he had all his dismounted forces, you know, his infantry uh, aligned before the barricade, and he planned to use his, his robust artillery, which consisted of two, two pop-gun cannons, uh, to knock down the barricade, uh, to, to weaken it sufficiently for him to attack launch a frontal attack. Uh, concurrently, he had his cavalry commander cross the Tallapoosa along with his Cherokee and Friendly Creek uh, auxiliaries, which 
alone numbered close to close to 800 warriors deploy on the far bank of the Tallapoosa to prevent warriors from escaping across the Tallapoosa when Andrew Jackson drove them from the barricade. But as things turned out quite differently for Jackson, his artillery failed to make a dent in the barricade and he really didn't have a fallback plan. But the Cherokee, his Cherokee allies on the far bank of the Tallapoosa grew impatient. They saw that the village across the river from them that the Red Stick Warriors were defending was pretty much unguarded. And the, the Cherokees, on their own initiative, began crossing, swimming across, retrieving Red Stick canoes and, and ferrying their warriors back and forth across the Tallapoosa, attacking this village uh, in the Red Stick rear, compelling the Red Sticks to detach warriors from the barricade to protect their women and children and retake the village. And this Cherokee initiative so weakened the Red Stick defenses that Jackson at last was enabled to, was enabled to uh, launch a frontal attack that carried the day, which he would not have been had the Cherokees not taken the initiative themselves. Right, right. He he basically ordered his men to charge with bayonets. And it yeah. was a ferocious, brutal display of, of hand-to-hand combat. Yeah, which would have been a lot worse had, again, had the Cherokee not caused uh, at least a third, maybe even half of the, you know, 1,000 or 1,200 Red Stick warriors to, to break away from the barricade to defend the village. Um, so out of the 1,000 or so Red Stick warriors... There were 200 or, or so that, that managed to escape, correct? Yeah, roughly speaking, I don't recall the exact number off the top of my head, but very few escaped. They either were killed outright in the battlefield or mopped up by the, by the army during the night. Or in the case of maybe two or 300, they, they either drowned or were killed or shot by uh, Cherokee and um, Tennessee cavalry on the far bank as they tried to cross the river to, to flee Jackson's infantry. And uh, yeah, so very, very f- few uh, made it away alive. It was, it was a wholesale slaughter. There is a moment, right, during one of these battles when Jackson takes pity on a child, uh, right? A, a Creek boy whose family has been killed. Right. That was earlier in the war, uh, after one of the, the first battles that he fought with the Red Sticks. His men brought to him this, this Indian baby uh, whose mother had been killed. Surviving Creek women didn't want anything to do with the orphan. And he decided to uh, send the orphan home to the hermitage to be a um, playmate, a uh, younger brother, for his adopted son and a second son for his for adopted son for his wife, uh, the child's name was Lincoya, and uh, he actually um, Jackson um, took him in and even had had an intention of, of uh, sending him to West Point as the child grew to be a, a teenager, but unfortunately Lincoya, uh, which is which ironically is the the Muscogee word for orphan. So he never got any other name except Lincoya, orphan. So poor orphan, um, he died of disease and um, his life was cut short. But yeah, that, that Jackson did have a, a you know humane side to him amidst all the, all the carnage and bloodshed. So after the battle, the Creek were forced to sign something called the Treaty of Fort Jackson. What did that entail? Right after the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, Jackson continued deeper into the Red Stick country. Um, the Red Sticks either surrendered, or in the case of uh, you know a couple thousand of, of the surviving Red Sticks and their families, they withdrew into Spanish Florida, where they finally did receive belated assistance from the British. Again, it came came about a year too late, and um, some of the Red Sticks would fight with the British in the, in the days leading up to the Battle of New Orleans. But for the, the, the Treaty of Fort Jackson negotiated in the uh, autumn of, of 1814 by Andrew Jackson, in which he acceded 
government orders. The, the U.S. government wanted only to uh, compel the Creeks to surrender uh, enough red stick land to compensate the United States government for the cost of the war as and turn over the red stick leaders. Jackson went further. He recognized that strategic interests as well as desire of Tennesseans for American Indian land required that he also slice off a good portion of lower Creek country, a friendly Creek country, resting between Spanish Florida and the Creek nation, cut a slice off part of it as a strategic barrier between the British and the remaining Red Sticks and, and the United States. So he, it was a pretty, uh, pretty harsh peace that he forced upon the Red Sticks and also upon friendly Creeks who fought with him. And just a few months after the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, Jackson fends off the British during the Battle of New Orleans. Exactly. And, and people tend to think that it was the Battle of New Orleans that made Jackson's reputation, made him the great national military hero that, that he was, but it wasn't. It was his victory at Horseshoe Bend that projected him onto the you know, forefront of the national scene, militarily speaking. Horseshoe Bend came at a time when the United States was losing you know, most battles in the War of 1812. And, and this victory again, propelled him to, uh, to fame. It won for him a major general's commission in the regular army. Heretofore, he had been merely a major general in the Tennessee militia, but the victory at Horseshoe Bend gives him that, that commission in the regular army and also command of the military department in the South. And that positioned him to be the commanding general of United States forces that opposed the British at the Battle of New Orleans. If he had not won the victory of Horseshoe Bend, he would have returned to, to Tennessee, uh, no more than a, a major general of Tennessee militia. He would never have had the opportunity to fight the British at New Orleans. Yeah, interesting. And we might all be uh, speaking with British accents here, huh? <laughs> well, it's very likely because, again, you know, the, the uh, Georgia quit the war against the Red Sticks, Mississippi Territory quit the war, and if Jackson had not pushed it through to a conclusion at, at Horseshoe Bend and afterwards, the Red Sticks would have remained, would have retained control of, of Alabama. Uh, you would have had the British coming onto the scene to reinforce the Red Sticks. And quite probably for at least a generation, if not longer, the Red Sticks would have retained control of, of, of Alabama and, and Western Georgia. And uh, there would have been no, uh, no cotton kingdom. Uh, and and thus uh, possibly no American Civil War because that land would have remained in, in American Indian hands, uh, you know, at least well into the 1830s, if not beyond. So yeah. it, it was yeah. it was an incredibly um, consequential conflict. I mean, it made possible the cotton economy of the Deep South, you know, the which in turn, of course, in part gave rise to the American Civil War, and it was a defeat of the Red Sticks that opened the door to the Trail of Tears. Because once the Red Sticks were defeated, there was no other uh, American Indian power in the American South with sufficient strength to militarily withstand the United States. And so after the Treaty of Fort Jackson from 1814 to the Trail of Tears in the 1830s, you had this gradual chipping away of, of remaining Creek land in Western Georgia and Alabama, and then after that, the Trail of Tears involving the Cherokee, the Chickasaw, Choctaw, and the Creek, in which they were all forced to, to resettle uh, in modern-day Oklahoma. So how did Jackson's experiences in the Creek War affect his presidency? How did he treat the Creek and other Indian tribes going forward based on those experiences in the war? I think his policy would have been the same either way. There was said by the time he became president, there was such a a, a hue and cry from uh, Tennessee and from Georgia to uh, and from um, that portion of Alabama that had become settled by whites uh, after the Treaty of Fort Jackson and some subsequent treaties. Uh, there was such a hue and cry to just seize what remained of American Indian land in the South uh, that Jackson was not, was pretty much riding the tide of popular opinion in, in the South when he um, began the Trail of Tears. And if he, if he had, you know, if he hadn't 
acquiesced, you had a, the possibility of the state of Georgia, you know, threatening to secede from the Union. Uh, and so it, he, again, he was, uh, he was doing nothing to, to protect the rights of, of Creeks and other American Indians who were doing their level best to assimilate by the 1830s. Uh, nothing to, to help protect their rights, but neither was he really ahead of popular opinion uh, in the American South to, to take their lands. Ah, interesting. So, well, again, I thank you for coming on. So you have a, a website. People can check you out, learn more about not only this book, but the others you've written as well. Absolutely. And drop me emails if they have, uh, have any questions. And uh, I'm always happy to, to respond. Well, excellent. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you. I, I, I enjoyed it very much. Again, I have been speaking to Peter Cousins. He is the author of A Brutal Reckoning, Andrew Jackson, The Creek Indians, and The Epic War for the American South. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The Eucalyptus Fiber Upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.